0: Welcome to the SubClub Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing app businesses. We sit down with the entrepreneurs, investors, and builders behind the most successful apps in the world to learn from their successes and failures. SubClub is brought to you by RevenueCat. Thousands of the world's best apps trust RevenueCat to power in-app purchases, manage customers, and grow revenue across iOS, Android, and the web. You can learn more at revenuecat.com. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Barnard, and my guests today are Melissa Cash, co-founder and CEO at PocPoc, and her colleague, Felix Boudreau, head of growth. Their first app, PocPoc Playroom, is an Apple design award-winning preschool app that sparks creativity and imagination through open-ended play. On the podcast, I talk with Melissa and Felix about why more apps should be more than just apps, the benefits of a hard paywall, and why a lower price might actually make you more money, even if the A-B test shows it didn't. Hi, Melissa and Felix. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having us.
1: Hey, David. Great to be here. Big fan of the
0: podcast. Oh, thanks. So I want to kick things off, Melissa, just talking about Pock, Poc, the company, and Pock Poc Playroom, and what inspired building the app and building the company.
2: Yeah. So we started thinking about Pock Poc almost four or five years ago now. Uh, my co-founders, Esther and Mateus, had just given birth to... Well, not Mateus. Esther had just given birth to their <laughs> second son, already had an almost two-year-old at home. And they were really starting to look around for things that they could give the two-year-old to play with on iPad. You know, they're millennial parents, very technologically savvy, both in the design and art space and didn't want to be hypocrites about using technology. And so when they started to look around, they were really just finding a lot of kind of the same. So a lot of very academic focused apps that were centered around like memorizing and regurgitating information or pretty addictive and overstimulating more video game style things that were not Appropriately designed for a two year old. (laughs) And (sighs) so they started wondering like, where are all of the beautiful, creative, and safe, open ended toys from the floor of our house? Like, why don't those exist in a digital space yet? And why is it that I have to be involved in helping my two year old, or three year old, or four year old play with any of these things? Because I think when it came to screen time, they were like, if we're going to put our toddler in front of a screen for 15 to 20 minutes, we want to go take a shower or make dinner or just like sit in the closet and and breathe for a minute. And so um, they started thinking about ways to bring that type of like living room floor play, as we call it, into a digital space, which started with what ended up becoming our busy book toy, which was just a very open-ended and creative toy with a bunch of different icons, no language, and you could just tap one. It would animate and make a little sound. And the best part was is their son, James, could play with it completely on their own. And right. they were working on it as a hobby project in the evenings and happened to show it to my brother, Ryan, who is the founder of Snowman. And um, Matt, Matthias was working there at the time. And Ryan showed it to me <laughs> because I had just finished working at Disney for almost five years designing products for this exact age group. And I was like, you guys should all chat. This could be something interesting. And it was. <laughs> so we started talking a lot about education and play and brand and and just the fact that like all of our kids are going to grow up to have jobs that haven't even been invented yet. And how are we supposed to equip them for that world? And so um, the education system also hasn't really changed in the last couple hundred years. This was pre-pandemic, but even still today, um, there's still a lot of you know room to grow in education and so all of these things just kept coming up and coming up and coming up and we were talking about how we really want to give kids the tools to become true creative thinkers so be able to really think outside of the box think for themselves like most toddlers don't get to make that many decisions in a day so We wanted to create something empowering and beautiful and that met them at their level that they could do on their own, not only for, you know, the parent to have a break for 10 minutes, but also for the child. It's a really empowering, awesome experience when a three-year-old can pick up something and master it on their own without help from an adult. And so all of these themes really came together and we decided to form a company based on this mission, which was ultimately to try to help raise the next generation of kids to be creative, empowered, and out-of-the-box thinkers. And um, when I came into the picture, I have to say I was so excited because I had just seen a few early sketches from Esther and I was blown away. I had just never seen anything in this art style for kids that was Mm -hmm. so beautiful that I would hang it on my wall at home, you know. And um it's interesting because when we first started, I I had a, just Disney IPs running through my head. <laughs> and um, <laughs> after spending years playing with Elsa and Anna and Mickey and all of those great characters, it was just kind of refreshing to see something so almost minimalist and simple and gentle that I saw a huge potential in. Um, and so we decided, OK, we're making a company and we're going to change the world through digital play.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I actually know your brother, Ryan, from like way back in the day. And so we talked, gosh, like 18 months ago, very early. I don't think you'd even launched the app. And one of the things that really struck me was that you're not just building an app. You have a much broader vision for the company. And so I'd love to dive into that a little bit about, you know, kind of where you see Pock Poc, uh, going in the future and, and not just being an app company.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. From the very beginning, we we realized Pock Poc Playroom, which is our, our app now, was something that didn't just fit into even like the snowman business who make really amazing, beautiful games and apps for adults. And actually some of them are played by children as well, but that's, that's just serendipitous. Um, because we could have very easily said, okay, hey, we want to make this app under the snowman brand. But We didn't, and that was very intentional. We wanted to create an entirely different company and brand centered around this creative vision because there is no like Pixar of play out there. There is no digital first creative brand that parents can wholeheartedly trust and that kids actually love. And so we just saw this huge opportunity to bring something very premium and special and, and frankly, just different, honestly, into the world to help serve this next generation of kids who are going to be digital natives more than any of our generation ever were. And so for us that that came with this almost like need to have to create beyond the preschool age group. So pop Pock Playroom is for two to six year olds. It does age up a little bit beyond six, depending on the family, but we have so many ideas that go far beyond that to about age 12. We also have ideas for adults, honestly. Um, we have physical product ideas. We have e- like experiential ideas. I think for the foreseeable future, we're very focused on digital, um, especially for the next like five plus years, but you know, don't, um, don't hold me to that because I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if one day there was a pock pop pop up creative, beautiful space where like kids could walk in and just go wild. And, um, We're just really inspired by all different types of play-based learning, and we wanted to make sure that we can create a brand that kids can grow up with throughout their childhood and that parents can really get behind. Because a lot of these evergreen kids' brands that have been around for decades, like Lego, Disney, Pixar, um, and so on and so forth, they're not digital-first brands. Um, They've adapted their business models to become digital. And so we have the advantage of starting digital in a digital era And um, yeah, so for us, the the sky's really the limit. We're really excited to continue developing not only apps, but potentially other experiences as well.
0: Yeah. So I asked you that question very specifically because I think and uh, some of our audience may have just kind of like glossed over and like, oh, she's just talking about some like, you know, branding stuff and, oh, she worked at Disney or whatever. But I think this is a really important thing that more subscription apps should be thinking about is that, you know, part of what makes a company like Disney so successful, and you're right, they kind of came at it not from digital, but came into digital. But dig- Disney Plus is so successful in part because of the combination of so many different business lines. You, you know, my son and I are watching through Star Wars on Disney Plus, And guess what? We both would love to go to their Star Wars experience. It's crazy expensive, so we're not going to do it. <laughs> um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, maybe someday. But... Um, But so there's experiences, you know, we bought him a a Mandalorian phone case, Uh, you know, and and so you have digital, you have physical products, you have physical experiences, you have digital experiences, you have digital products, you have games, you have IP, you have licensing. And it's such a broad business in, I think, too many subscription app companies, consumer subscription companies just have the blinders on of like all our business is ever going to be is how many new users can we get into the app and how many of those can we turn into subscribers and how many can we turn into retain retain subscribers over as many years as possible and and, and like you said right now pokpok's focus is the playroom app and so you're you're very focused on those metrics and those things but i think in the long run and so anybody listening to this who glossed over what Melissa was talking about go rewind the podcast <laughs> listen again think about your own business and think about you know are there ways that that we can think beyond what we're currently building and have a larger vision to do something in the world to 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 and, and to I mean frankly to expand LTV right like Absolutely you know,
2: Absolutely. It's funny too, because we are, and well, so we can talk about this, you know, when we talk more about product optimization at some point, I'm sure we'll get to that. And yeah. But we are, we are willing to make sacrifices on optimization for brand longevity and right. experience because we feel that, yes, on the one hand, we are a very new company. We have a new product. It's one and a half years old right now, and we still have a long way to go with it. And we're very invested in that but we are also invested in the future. We, we have an entire sort of like hive mind at the company that are just focused on long-term things. It's why we do a lot of PR. It's why we do a lot of organic marketing as well, because we're not in this just to make a quick buck and move on. Like we truly do want to redefine the space. And I think the best way to do that as a kid's brand is to be as multidimensional as possible, because we also feel that, you know, if, If we can earn the trust of parents, and I say that like very seriously because earning trust from parents is it very special and important and difficult. But if we can do that and do right by them and their kids, then I think we've really have an endless opportunity Mm -hmm. to grow with that family, which would be a privilege. Like I know growing up we were a very Disney household. No big surprise that I ended up working there. (laughs) That is it's formational. It defines you. And we don't right. have digital brands that are doing that right now. We have digital products that are doing that, like Minecraft, Roblox, other things. But you know, there's a huge opportunity to scope beyond that and build experiences that the whole family can really enjoy. And so for us, we're, we're very focused on the playroom, but we're also right. just as uh, mindful of what we're doing for the long term.
0: That's fantastic. And, and and that's part of the thing, right? Having that broader vision helps shape your decisions day in, day out, that you're not just, you know, overly optimizing or using scammy tactics or things like that. You're building something for the long haul. I uh, speaking of building things, I, I did want to kind of get into so, so you, you know, you met the co-founders, you got super excited about about this, you know, single kind of app experience, you know, built a, a much grander vision, but how did you go from that? prototype to then building a a now award-winning, um, (laughs) successful experience?
2: So it came, I mean, the people, I mean, that's the fundamental ingredient to any successful product or company. We hired a really diverse group of people that are not all from the games or kids space. Um, we have, and, and we we worked with a lot of kids. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> um, the Poc Pok Playroom is essentially a digital playroom filled with open-ended toys that spark imagination and creative thinking and learning through play that the child leads themselves. So because we have no menus, no language, no instructions, no winning or losing, no points to score. All of those things made it actually extremely tough to design because we had to think like toddlers. And that's impossibly difficult as an adult. We're just so jaded. So we had to really tap into the sense of wonder that we all had growing up and work with a lot of families. So- we played with a lot of physical toys we go to a lot of toy stores toy fairs museums science centers and we talk to each other share stories from our childhood we go to daycares and preschools and play with kids and and really just try to understand like what makes play so much fun for them and so educational and valuable for them and then we take that and we wrap it up and we start play testing and building prototypes and eventually the playroom Became pretty full. <laughs> um, but we do have like a pretty robust development process where we work together internally first, and then we go outside, we test with a bunch of families, we go to schools and test, we come back, we learn. I mean, kids are brutally honest <laughs> under the age of six. I would say they have zero yeah. filter. It's wonderful. I think we all learn a lot from them every day when they're like, no. <laughs> um, so, I think that has been like the secret ingredient to our success. And then of course, you know, we, we try to integrate as much data as possible into all of that, because at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we're fully optimized for success. And sometimes that means following our gut. And sometimes that means following the data, but we find if we follow the kids, they tend to lead us to the best path forward because they just, they just know. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. I, so one fascinating thing to me, and and um, my kids and I played with the app quite a bit during the, the beta, whatever you know, long, long time ago. <laughs> but in thinking through how to make data informed decisions for a product like Pock Pock Playroom, how do you instrument that? Are you are you looking at at time spent and and touches and and things like that to kind of understand? you know, is this, and for those who haven't played with the app, you you should, especially if you have kids, it's really cool. But it's essentially you you land on this kind of home screen with a bunch of different little uh, icons, essentially, that take you into different toys. And each toy is just this kind of open exploration. One's a drawing toy, and there's a bunch of other little kind of toys. But kids naturally do start this just tapping around and seeing things that move and pock and pock like makes noise and like things move and you can play little games. It's, I mean, it's like a, like Lego combined with blocks combined with like, there's so many fun experiences. <laughs> Sorry, pitching the product, but but I, I, I think <laughs> it's somewhat helpful for people to understand that aspect of it. So do you, do you track like touches and like minutes spent in the different experiences and, and how do you collect that data? And then how do you kind of make decisions based on that and reconcile that against kind of what you're seeing in in playtesting.
1: If I can jump on that. Yeah. Uh, Basically, like we're, like our our tech stack is growing, but we've been um, leveraging Amplitude for like a lot of these like data analytics uh, purposes. But the answer to what you say is yes to basically a a lot of things. We do track when uh, kids are playing with toys, uh, how long they're playing or like the frequency of toys. Of course, all of that is like extremely like anonymized. We're very, very, very careful when it comes to collect data because just uh, we want to be very protective of the people who use our app. We're right. we're COPA compliant. Uh, we also like uh, deal with Kid Safe, which is an organization that makes sure that our app is is very kid safe and and kind of keeps us on our toes in that way. So um, yeah, basically. We look at a lot of those datas, but it's interesting because, like Melissa said, we're not necessarily an app that is very focused on uh, gaming and and getting kids addicted to it. Because the purpose of it is not necessarily to boost the length of session like right. more and more, or to boost the number of session. Like we don't want kids to necessarily use Puck, Puck six times a days for an hour. That that's right. not the purpose. We want for when the kids use the app that they're entertained by it of course because otherwise it wouldn't serve its purpose but at the same time we don't want them to be addicted we wanted when a parents need to make supper they need to give the tablet for 30 minutes the kids have an awesome experience they learn they play but at the same time another thing we're really focused on is that when a parents has to take the ipad back because supper is ready we don't want to have a tantrum which is also right. plays in that if the kids is super overstimulated by like getting coins and like just like focused on an objective. That might very well happen. So that's very much part of how we're looking at data. Like we want to make sure that we balance qualitative and quantitative data to create this experience that is calming, entertaining, educative, but also not fall into just put KPIs that are pushing us to like get kids to play longer and more often. That's something we're very wary of.
2: Mm-hmm. It's true. I, I just want to add as well that we we definitely want kids to want to play with Pok but we don't want it to be that their kryptonite, you know, because that that's yeah. fun for nobody. Like, of course, we would much rather, and with our own kids, even like go outside, play in the mud, get dirty, have make a mess. Like that is more important than any digital toy we're ever going to make, probably. But. Right there's a time and a place for digital play. And when we bring it into the hands of children, when we're looking at the data, we, we just want to make sure that they're getting the most robust experience possible, that they're moving from toy to toy, that they're not like drowning in front of it for hours and hours and hours, and that they, they want to come back. Because one of the And one of the ways we actually figured that out, it was, it was kind of interesting because balancing engagement with addiction is very counterintuitive. Like most apps are just focused on engagement and like, how can they bring you back, bring you back, bring you back. And of course that is important to us in order to like keep a healthy business, but we want to make sure we're doing it in a way that is healthy for the children and also feels good for the parents. And so with that, we decided that all of our toys will be intrinsic, intrinsically motivated. So the play comes from the child, any limit or boundary that they encounter while they're playing is something that is within themselves, not within the app. And there's no congratulatory anything that happens when they do anything. Like even solving a problem, like taking a mail and putting it in a mailbox, that's only a problem to solve if a child identifies it as a problem to solve. And that's why it's such a beautiful thing because we can see that kids are able to you know, deliver the mail, let's say, for 10 minutes. And then let's say mom calls and says, okay, kids, it's time to get out of the car. We're, we're at our destination. Uh, they can just put it away. And when they come back, there'll still be more mail to deliver if they so choose, or they can go do something completely different. So because right. of that open-endedness, it actually works in our favor in terms of engagement because they're curious. They want to come back and see what else they can do, but they're not... Fighting because there's not like one more thing to do before the time runs out, and so it's a it's a very tricky dichotomy, and we're looking at the data a lot in order to make sure that we're constantly finding the right balance there,
0: yeah, I, I want to highlight again because I think this is just so interesting. I hope that you know our audience is is probably not a ton of kids' apps, and so for the kids' apps, they're probably just eating this up and loving this conversation <laughs> If you are listening to this and hopefully you didn't skip this one and you're not a kid's app, again, go back and listen to that whole sequence in the frame of building for adults as well. And it's part of the beauty of a subscription app where your customers are paying you versus ads being paid for the maximum amount of time that you can spend in an app. To me, this has been a real shift in the app economy is that the subscription model is more aligned with delivering value than capturing attention so when you think about your kpis not as a kid's app but as a scanner app or or whatever it's like go back and listen to that description again through the eyes of how does that play into adults like do we need this like gamification do we need rewarding engagement versus like just delivering the value and getting them in and out of the app quickly and things along those lines And, and again i think it's so fun having this conversation because I think there's just so much to take away, not just for kids apps, which again, I think the kids apps listening are going to love this, but I think so many other subscription app entrepreneurs can learn from the approach that you're taking and the play testing and balancing against being data informed and all those things. So, so just fantastic, fantastic insights there. To not drag this on for hours, I would love to talk to you <laughs> all for like Multiple hours, but we only have another 30 minutes or so. Um, I did want to step into uh, pricing and the subscription model. You know, again, this is a subscription app podcast. All of us have kind of made this decision already. But again, I I think it's going to be informative to step through your decision to make it a subscription first, and then we can talk about pricing and paywall and things like that. Um, But, you know, having been on the beta and played with it with my kids, there is maybe an obvious thing to do in that each different experience is kind of a toy and just like you buy a toy you might just buy each of those individual experiences for 5 bucks or 10 bucks or 2.99 or whatever it is so i'm curious you know as you've built a product play tested talked to parents i'm sure you did some kind of price discovery Um, but what what was the thinking and research and decision-making behind deciding to go subscription versus single in-app purchase or even lifetime or any other business model that you could have potentially chosen?
2: So this was a huge conversation uh, that lasted a very long time. And honestly, sometimes we're, we're still going back to it time and time again to just question it and make sure that we're really on the right path. But fundamentally speaking, we knew that we wanted to create something that was always evolving. And that, because kids are so curious that they never stop being curious. So we knew we had to create new content regularly and we also had a million ideas. So we were like, we have to keep making stuff. And in order to do that, we need recurring revenue. So a big piece of the why came from that. It was just like, we know we want to make more content over time, so we should be a subscription. That was like step one. Um, there were probably 50 other steps in there of like, you know, really digging into that. But at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we're able to create value because, and and that value is interesting because we our user is not our customer. So we need value for right. the parent and value for the child. And if we were to, say, paywall certain experiences or charge per toy, um, it gets very confusing for a toddler who is holding this device in their hand and saying, why can't I play? What What did right. I do wrong? And that is not something that they have done wrong. That is our That would be poor design, in my opinion, because the child should never face a boundary when they're playing like that. Um, Maybe the boundary is, oh, I can't pick up this giant rock outside because it's just too heavy. That's very different than, like, I can't touch the rock because someone's asking me to pay for it first. (laughs) So we, we wanted to create the absolute purest experience for kids from day one. That has been challenging, to be honest, because there are tricks of the trade, which I'm sure a lot of the people listening know in order to make more money. But For the very beginning of our journey, we wanted to make sure we're starting with a very, very clean slate that's creating the most value for the child first. Um, And then for the parent, it goes back to the added content. I think that's a huge piece. And also understanding that our team doesn't just reskin existing toys with seasonal stuff. Right. Right. Sure, sometimes like recently we'll do a Halloween update because kids actually think that's so cool, but um it's not the fundamental core of our uh product development. That is inventing new toys that have never existed in the world before now. And that takes a lot of time and effort and money. So um the subscription, you know, the the hard paywall which we can talk about the subscription model itself, those are all things that we found would be best balanced for the child and for the parent. And I, I know Felix probably has some thoughts on this as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is a in a way like we're asking parents to commit right away to subscription, right? Like we do offer a free trial because that's very important that the kid can try the app and actually see if it's a good fit, if they, if they like it, if they learn with it. But at the same time, like Melissa said, we do want to, we are kind of betting on parents who value having a very pure experience where, there's no paywall. There's no sneaky like, game mechanics that the kids might fall into and then they get that crazy bill because of in-app purchases. We, we really wanted to go against that 100%. And also, I think it's beneficial for the parents because, again, we want to create something that the child can play with without the parents being involved. And there's kind of a side effect with paywalls in a freemium version is that the kid's going to run into paywall two to six, he might not even be able to read like at, at that level, right? So like he doesn't know what's happening. Then he really needs uh, one of the parents to help him get out of there, you know? So like that was another big reflection and talking to user a lot, like the kids get so much fun out of having a new toy in the playroom and like a new big update like we did for Halloween where like everything was like wrapped in Halloween and there's like monsters and there was like, like uh pumpkins and it was really great and kids like really love that so we do want to create like that delight often and subscription works in that way you know because otherwise it would be hard to to make that constant delight and new toys and innovation happen in a business model that is just strictly paid so that kind of like went on to decision but like Melissa said it's taking that decision. We we take kind of a hard stance on that, uh, but that's what we're betting on. We want to create the best experience as possible.
0: Yeah, and, and it's just it's so interesting how the subscription model helps align with that experience. That you're you're, and it, it and it as you were saying, Melissa, that you know your goal is to to deliver value and if somebody's not getting value, they cancel. Mm -hmm. It's something I think, you know, we're seeing a lot in our revenue cat data. You know, consumers are very rational. (laughs) You know, there's a metric I like to call zombie subscribers where, uh, and we've looked at this a few times in our data, and there just aren't that many people who stay subscribed to something that they're not actively using. Uh, and then there's there are some apps where you won't necessarily you know open the app you know widget apps and other things like that so yeah or, or you pay for it on Stripe um, and you open it on Apple or you you pay for it on Apple and you're using it somewhere else or you know things like that where you know it's not necessarily direct reflection but generally you know if you're delivering value consumers stay subscribed if they're not getting value they cancel <laughs> and. And it's just a, a very like direct alignment of incentives. And one of the things I did want to dive a little deeper on, and you kind of mentioned it, you both mentioned it in passing, is that you now have a hard paywall. So I was on the beta, you know, me and my kids played with it, but it wasn't until this week that I realized that you when I was downloading the app from the app store to like better understand and get off the beta, you know, the full experience. And so I downloaded it and you can't do anything without starting a free trial, which I, you know, more and more apps are going this direction. I'm actually going to be experimenting with a hard paywall myself, so I, I wanted to dive into this a little bit uh, around the decision making, and then even you know whatever you're willing to share on kind of how it's performing and if you experimented with any other variations.
2: Hmm. Felix, I know this is something you're very passionate about. <laughs> <Let's start. laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, I, I mean, having worked for other apps, like having a hard paywall is a big decision, right? Because like you're going to yeah. lose a lot of people who don't want to enter a free trial and that's totally understandable. Um, so the thinking behind that was a lot of like creating that really pure experience. But we we tried a few things with that paywall. Um, the first one we launched was extremely simple, kind of like explaining uh, value proposition that we have in the app. And then at that point, if people were ready to commit they could enter a trial uh, and if they don't like it they can just cancel right like it, it's it's fairly easy to do uh so based on that like we wanted to like push that the performance was quite good to be honest like with a hard paywall what's good is like your download to paid rate is is generally a bit higher than if you let people the 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 opportunity to test the toys right but one thing that we tested that was really interesting to me is that we, we saw we, we did lose a lot of people who were like, listen, I don't know if my kid's going to like it. I'm not ready to put in my, my credit card information and enter a trial. So we wanted to see if we let them try the toys before entering the trial. Would that make any difference? Would they see the toys and be like, wow, like I, I'm really, really need to come in for a trial. So we designed a paywall where we let users try the toys for 20 seconds at a time and then the toy would close. So that would let, let them try the toys and hopefully like it and want to like see more about it. But interestingly enough, that kind of backfired in a way. Uh, we got a lot of people trying that aspect, but a lot of them just kind of stuck with that. They saw that experience in of itself as a free trial, and they kind of like we saw we had lots of users like just playing the twenty seconds all over and over again and when we looked at the data we're like that's crazy like there was a huge amount of people who did that and were quite satisfied with that the the reasoning is it's not the parents who would suffer going through the 20 seconds again and again it was the kid because there would be playing with that so interestingly enough that create a lot more active users in a way but it did perform more poorly because like the kids would just play with that and no one was was really winning because kids were playing in a really like lesser version of the app. We weren't getting more trials and parents, I guess, like weren't be able to give their kids really what the app could could focus on. So based on that, we, we rolled it back, uh, of course. And now we're trying a lot of different paywalls like A-B testing, uh, really trying different value proposition, which is really hard because it's a hard paywall. Parents have to yeah. get it. And some parents get it when we talk to people, some people get it from the app store. They read it, they're like, I know what they're doing. They want to create this calming, safe uh, app that is open-ended, that is beautiful, that is calming. But like some people don't necessarily get it right away. So a lot of the things we're doing is really spelling out the value proposition in a way that people will understand and that will make them want to try uh, the free trial. And at that point, we're really talking to parents. So we have a lot of uh, of uh, A B tests coming in that direction.
2: And I think just to add quickly, like that is the kind of crux of our challenge being the, having a user that isn't our customer because we right. thought parents, we'll give you a tour of the playroom, take a look around, follow your nose, see what's there. And parents saw that and were like, oh, here it is. Here you go, Johnny. And then they just walk away. And their kids would be (laughs) stuck with this thing and they would get frustrated because every 20 seconds they would be popped back to the playroom from one toy. They could always go back in, but this thing that we designed as like a beautiful tour for the parents was totally misinterpreted. And that was our fault. Like we just didn't design it well enough for them to get it. And it was a really big learning for us. It's something we might actually go back and test again with different design and better communication that explains just more clearly like what this is. But we're for now, like Felix said, focus more on optimizing the hard paywall and making sure that we're communicating the value correctly to parents. And that's kind of different for every parent. Some parents just want an app that their kid, that's going to keep their kid busy for half an hour. And others want something that they can tangibly come back with and say, oh, my kid learned X, Y, and Z in the last 27 minutes. Cool. Now I feel like an awesome parent. Um, right. Or, you know, there are just a multitude of things. So we're just in the midst of um, massive testing on that front.
0: Very cool. I'm I'm curious if y'all have, uh, experimented with uh, video paywalls. Is that something you've done a test on yet or is that forthcoming?
2: It's forthcoming. It's in the works right now, actually.
0: <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. That, the hard paywall thing is just so fascinating. I, I think, you know, we we really are still kind of in the early stages of figuring this out for consumer products. I mean, you know, on the web and SaaS and kind of other business models that kind of have a lot more maturity and experimenting with all these different things. And I've just been seeing more and more apps experiment with not even a hard paywall with a free trial, but even like a long onboarding and like mm-hmm. you subscribe or not yeah. and no freemium experience. And, and then on the flip side, I mean, there's apps where a freemium experience actually um, really delivers additional value and helps with word of mouth. And like, there's just so yeah. many different ways to to run these businesses. So it's cool to see as a kid's app experimenting with this hard paywall and I imagine Um, again, having, having played with the app myself a bit, I I imagine the free trial ends up being kind of a free trial for both the parents and the kids that parents like, you know, because they have to, to start the free trial to, to even unlock any experience in the app. They're there, you know, with the device. And, you know, when I first. Uh, introduce it to my kids. I sat down and played too. They're actually really fun. <laughs> you <laughs> move the little things around, and you accomplish things, and you get little audio rewards and stuff. So it's cool that y'all are thinking about adult toys too, because I think you know, <laughs> too often we adults don't don't play enough, and so sitting on the floor playing the 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 with the playroom with my kids was actually a really fun experience. So, do you think about that the kind of combination of like how much of this is a kind of a parent-free trial and how much of it is a kids-free <laughs> trial? Do you have any way to like determine that or user testing or anything? It's
2: it's so hard to actually know who's holding the device, right? But yeah. we um it's something we do try to experiment with in user testing and we just ask as many people as will uh, uh listen to us and answer us, but it's funny because we one of the other challenges that we have is that sometimes parents don't understand what to do because they've forgotten how to play, um, <laughs> yeah. and as adults, that's very normal. Like if it's very normal to forget how to play as an adult, but um, you know, so they'll ask us like, "What's the point?" or like, "How do how do they do it? How do I teach my kid how to use this?" And we're like, "You don't have to teach them anything. Just hand them the device and let them follow their nose, and you'll see." the creativity come to life. You'll see them have fun. You'll see them explore. And that's all we want. Um, But we're so ingrained as a society to be like winning and achieving something and trying to get somewhere with everything that we do. Even if it's like listening to a podcast, I listen to Subclub all the time and it's for my own development. It's to get smarter. It's to learn something. And it's so rare that I listen to a podcast just to relax. Like We're just so focused on achieving things that, um, it's really tough for us sometimes to communicate that to parents. And the best way to do it is to show them is to have them play with it themselves. But funnily enough, the barrier can be, can be hard. Like when we see it in person during testing, they're like, oh, well, how do I play with, how do I play with this one? And you can see them being embarrassed. Like, I don't know how to play. And it's almost, it's almost (laughs) sad, honestly, but like it's actually a serious problem that we're we're trying yeah. to combat all the time because if you give your kid like an abc thing like hey hey johnny like practice the abc's for 10 minutes it's very easy for a parent to walk their child through that but mm-hmm. if you get a set of just blank lego blocks like the simple you know set with no instructions what do you do what do you tell your kid like Go like <laughs> make something. Um, right. or throw them against the wall and see if you can land them in the garbage bin. Like there's so many ways to play with that. And that's that's a pock pock is, and that's our biggest challenge in the yeah. onboarding and getting parents to understand and getting them playing with it as well.
0: And then the the last part of this uh hard paywall experience I wanted to talk about is the pricing. So the app, or at least what I saw, I don't know if you're doing A-B testing currently, but I saw a $7 a month and $46 a year. I'm curious, kind of the the thought and research behind the pricing. And then if you have done or plan on doing uh price experimentation.
1: Yeah. Well, when we first launched in uh May 2021, like this is also like a pretty recent app. We're just yeah. went uh over to one year mark. So we started at a price that was like twenty-nine ninety nine a year, uh six ninety nine uh a month. <laughs> Pardon me. $3.99 a month. That's a new price. Uh, and there was a lot of thinking that went into that. So looking at at other apps with like similar value, the amount of toys that we had in the app at that point, uh, what people would be willing to do. And honestly, like the first price was pretty dead on, in, in meaning that like we got a really, really great adoption from the get-go. And like the stats were really good. The download to paid was really good. Uh, but as we kind of expanded the the playroom, like doubling its size, basically, like we're like, oh, we think we brought a lot of value. There's new updates uh, every other week, so we wanted to test another price, so we went pretty drastically and we doubled the price to see just like where does that, what does that do? And interestingly enough, it actually made our download to pay better, uh, which which was quite surprising wow. and, and somehow like counterintuitive. So that was a good learning. Like, I think people, when they see something really qualitative, they're ready to pay. Like, and unless the price is like crazy, crazy different, uh, we found that it worked pretty well for us. But of course, like everything in life, there was like, uh, there was a backlash in terms of like retention, especially when we talk about monthly, because people, especially, you know, when they're on the monthly iOS subscription, every week, every month, they'll get that email and like kind of, rethink like okay that's how much I'm being charged. So now we're kind of trying to find a sweet spot. Uh we yeah. like you said the price is kind of an in-between right now. Uh we want to do more price testing and we want to find a price also that's gonna enable us to do paid acquisition at a good level, you know? So like right. we're working a lot on optimizing our metrics, but we also want to have a good LTV that is going to allow us to um to unblock certain paid channels. So like, that's kind of where our thinking is. And also we want to be conscious of how much people are, are able to pay. Also with like, we're, we're kind of in the special uh, economical situation where we want to be mindful of that as well. So that goes into our decision for pricing.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating that you brought up um, retention as a function of pricing. So, so if I'm understanding you correctly, just just to make sure when you doubled the price, you more than doubled your revenue because your download to paid went up mm-hmm. and you doubled the price. So you actually more than doubled your revenue by making that one pricing change.
2: Yeah, it yep. was a pretty big win. <laughs> but um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We were very, very excited about it. But um, like Felix said, funnily enough, we also did that during... Um, We did that in February of 2022. So that's when the world started to come to pieces in many ways as well. So, And then the other thing is kids tend to use their devices a bit less in the summer. They're busy playing outside and swimming and stuff and having lots of fun. So with that… After several months, we started to see an uptick in our monthly churn. And after talking to users and, and really trying to dig into what factors might have been causing it, like we're very confident that it was the price. And it could be you know, we, we split test everything, but, um, at the end of the day, we, we can't say a hundred percent if it's just that it's high or if it's just that it's high during this exact time in, yeah. in like the macroeconomic situation. So we're, we're constantly iterating, but we're, we're in this sort of sweet spot pricing right now that we're feeling good about that. It seems users are also happy with that, uh, in terms of value for them, which is obviously very, very important. So yeah, it's a, it's just a constant testing game.
0: Yeah, th- this is a, a topic I hope to delve a little more into, especially with, like y'all were saying, you know, where we're at kind of in the broader macroeconomic environment. Um, but one of the things that is really tough to do is to go back and look at how these kind of experiments you know, impact retention. And so it's really cool that y'all did actually take the time to do that. Because really, with a subscription app, it's not just about that first conversion. It's about building a long term relationship with these customers. And price is a huge part of that relationship that you're building with the customers. And there is a balance between that, the premium aspect of like building a premium product and charging a premium for it, but then also you know, being affordable for the long haul, where you're delivering more value to the user than you're asking in return. Uh, and then those economics start to shift when <laughs> broader economics start to shift. Um, so I think it's going to be really interesting over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months of experimenting with potentially lowering prices, you know, finding the sweet spot. So it's, it's great to hear that y'all are already experimenting with that. Gosh, there's so much I want to ask, but uh, <laughs> we just have a few minutes left. One of the things Pock Poc has done especially well that I think a lot of apps struggle with is getting press, getting featured by Apple. Um, Melissa, you've been on a ton of podcasts, you've gotten a ton of articles written. Uh, you know, give me a speed run of <laughs> of advice to other subscription app entrepreneurs of of how to tell good stories <laughs> and then, and then, you know, which things you've found to be more impactful for the business and networking um, versus things that maybe you put a lot of effort into that that didn't actually move the needle.
2: Sure. Yeah. I could talk about this for hours, but I'll give you I know. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to keep it quick. So when we started making Pock Pock, we started telling people about it. Uh, It was very top secret in our, in our circles. Like nobody really knew that we were making it except for journalists and Apple. (laughs) And that was very intentional. We, we have relationships with journalists from previous jobs, from like our, our connection with Snowman and so on and so forth. And we spoke to every single journalist who had kids first and said like, Hey, do you want to, do you want to test this out? And, um, getting into their hearts and minds early was really important. We also have a lot of if you're in the tech space and you're creating a subscription app, a lot of journalists want to be along for that ride. They want to, They have a lot of opinions about how things should be made. And so it's <laughs> it's pretty awesome to show them an early version of your product and say, hey, give us feedback every once in a while, get on the beta. Sometimes they're on too many and they'll say no. But um, I think with us, we, we did it during COVID, <laughs> especially very, very early days of COVID, like literally the beginning. So we had a lot of journalists who were like, oh, yes, great. Okay, cool. Something for my kid to do while I'm working. So we had a lot of people trying it out. And then they also, they give you valuable feedback. They start to learn and understand your business. They get to know you on a personal level, which makes everything way better. And then they also feel like they're part of the journey with you. They've given you feedback and they've played with your beta. They have a connection to this product that they wouldn't have otherwise had. So my suggestion to anybody out there creating an app would be to share it with people as early as you can, who will help amplify it when the time comes. And I wouldn't be too paranoid about NDAs and all of that stuff because no one cares about that. Um, We were so protective of Poc Poc at the very beginning and then realized like, let's, let's share it. You know, these people are to be trusted. They're professionals and it's absolutely worth building those relationships because then when you do have news, They're excited. They're they actually care about it. It's not like oh great, hey, cool, something to fill my Thursday slot. They're like oh damn, that's awesome. Like I want to write about this, and it's more than just a quick update. It's a whole backstory, and so talking to the press early is really really important. And with Apple, um, you know, we just wanted to share what we were making with them, and they they really enjoyed it. And they were like, keep us posted and and so on and so forth. And we're really fortunate to have won an Apple Design Award. And, and I think just because of that, we we do get a lot of featuring. Apple likes to highlight Apple Design Award winners. And that's something we're very proud of and uh, we're, exactly. are very happy that they they continue to highlight PocPoc Poc for us. But um, the other thing is the more content you add to your app, the more reason there is to talk about it whether that's in the in press or in the app store or wherever so it's important to think about your updates from a content and subscription value point of view but also from a marketing point of view and really try to balance those narratives so for example we did a big update last year for the Lunar New Year, and it was a lot of work internally to make this. And we, but we we didn't just make it and launch it quietly. We we tried to make as right. loud of an announcement as possible because we. It's not just adding content because the Lunar New Year was happening. It's because we're trying to highlight cultural values and different cultures in Pok Pok. So that was the first of our cultural updates. Then we did pride in June and we, we have a lot more coming. And so we're, we're just really adamant about sharing the whys behind what we're making, not just the what's. And I think that's what journalists tend to care about. And also if you're not in the app business, you have no idea who makes apps. It's like a totally unsexy (laughs) thing to talk about. Um, people like, yeah, I have Netflix and like Google Maps on my phone, but (laughs) nobody cares about that story. You have to make them care. So it's really important to us to share who the heck we are and why we're building this. And Esther and I specifically spend a lot of time just trying to share the fact that, like, we are real parents, we have real children, we're doing this for a reason. Uh, And And people, people are curious. They want to know. And especially if you have a demographic that are millennials or Gen Z's, they care so much about who is making their products, whether that's buying a t-shirt or getting a coffee. They want to know if it's ethical, why it was made, how it was made and all of that stuff. So we, we also work really hard to lift up the curtain and show people who we are and how we make what we're making. Um. And I guess the last thing I would say on the PR front is it's never too early to start and make sure that you you speak to the right people. Um, Felix can also talk wow. about that because he used to be a journalist in his past life. <laughs> but I, I would say like it's it's very tough to measure downloads from a news article. You'll you're never right. gonna know. You can read impressions and all of that till the end of the day, but you you won't necessarily know. But if you Um, But you'll see it trickle. You'll see it trickle so many ways in terms of hiring, in terms of raising capital, if you want to raise capital, in terms of – just getting the word out there about your brand because the more people see it and hear about it, the more likely they are to engage with it because in this day and age with social media, you need to see a brand at least 10 times before you actually do anything about it. Like I've been about to buy this shampoo for like three months, but I still have it. So, and I'm close. I'm very close. Yesterday I got to like the end cart thing, but then I aborted. So maybe tomorrow.
1: (laughs) Or you might get a discount then. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But I just wanted to jump in for uh, in terms of a a quick advice for Abdeebala. When it comes to um, updates that you do, it really pays off to do like a great in-app event with like a beautiful image and like really figure out what updates make sense for your app. And it, it's, it, it's not the longest thing in the world, but like it really goes a, a long way in getting promoted and getting featured by Apple and ha- putting something really beautiful in front of uh, potential users has been really uh, impactful for us in terms of uh, in-app events particularly.
0: Yeah. One thing I did want to ask you, Felix, as we wrap up. So one thing Melissa said there that I think a lot of people listening will be like, oh, she had contacts at Apple. Oh, she had contacts in the press. I don't have contacts at Apple. I don't have contacts in the press. But the truth is, (laughs) well, yeah, that so step one is that, yeah, you have to make them. And but step two is like, how how do you make them? Mm -hmm it's that you tell a compelling story and and that you you weave stories into what you're building like it has to be interesting i mean i've done this a lot with my apps like i intentionally build unique differentiated features into the app and i intentionally use you know brand new functionality and apis and use them in ways that people have never used them before because that's an interesting story to tell And so what I want to ask you, Felix, is that for those who don't have connections, making connections is about telling good stories. And journalists, even though, yeah, you may get them to read four more sentences because you have a a, a connection than they would if you, you know, send it to the tips email, you even if you have a connection, they're not just going to write about you because they know you or whatever. You still have to have a compelling story to tell. You still have to build that relationship. You still have to do all the things. So for for somebody who maybe doesn't have those relationships, do you have any tips, Felix, from your experience at PocPoc and then being a journalist previously and working with other apps of kind of how to approach that storytelling and how to tell compelling stories?
1: Yeah, I I think the most important part of all this is to be extremely critical of what you're pitching. Like you have to assume that journalists are getting 100 pitches a day. So like really think about what you're pitching and think about is the journalist really going to like see your thing and be like, oh, that's different from all the other apps I'm getting pitched every day. Like, is it? Like if it's not, rethink what you're doing. Like, Think about your story. Like if it's just, oh, like I saw a problem and I I found a solution and here's an app. Okay, like everyone's saying that, like what makes it interesting? Uh, Do you have a, a unique rapport with this problem? Like if you're doing an anxiety app, do you suffer of anxiety? And like, what was the trigger? Like you have to find a way to humanize what you're doing. And also you have to make sure that there's not 25 apps that are doing exactly the same way and solving the same problem the same way then there's zero chance the journalist is going to talk about it. So like be very critical. Think about how you're pitching it to make it like humans like good stories, pitch it and make it interesting, make it compelling. And also uh, make sure you don't copy paste (laughs) like your messages, (laughs) like journalists can just sniff that. So like try to connect to work they've done before. Also, make sure you're talking to the right person because that's all that work you're going to do ahead of time. Just making sure that you're talking to the right person that writes app thing, not only talks about tech, but has written about apps, has written about your category of apps, spending that time is going to be very rewarding. And then connect it with stuff that they've done before. If they talked about kids app, like, oh, that was really interesting. We're doing something a bit in that field, but we're doing it that way. And the the, the founder has this crazy story. So like, really think about your pitch, find the right person. And if you think about it and you don't think you have the right pitch or the right story, that also might be a business model thing that you're not differentiated enough. So that can help also uh, taking back to your business model and like, are, are we doing something different that people are going to be interested in? So yeah. yeah, that would be my my advice for people uh, that don't have connection.
2: Follow journalists on Twitter that you, that are relevant because you'll, you'll be surprised how many people actually ask for leads. So Just keep an eye out. It'll help you understand what they care about, what they write about. If they have kids, if they have a dog, if they have anxiety, if they – like, people are so open on Twitter. So keep an eye out. And if you see something interesting, say something. Even if you have no news, just be like, hey, I read your thing on that. It was awesome. It really touched me in this way. Okay, bye. And then three months later, when you do have a pitch, they're going to open your email because last time they actually – you didn't ask them for anything. You just gave them a compliment or you connected with them. So – pay attention to these people. Like they're humans too, you know, it's connections are, are a wonderful thing and they're very useful, but they only get you so far.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, fantastic, uh, advice to wrap up on. I, I think all, uh, subscription app entrepreneurs could, uh, could use some, some lessons in storytelling and pitching and understanding their product differentiation better, Anything else you want to share as we wrap up is, uh, is PuckPuck hiring, uh, this, you've got a great audience here.
2: (laughs) Yes, we are going to actually be opening up a couple of roles in the next few weeks. So they're not posted yet, but we are going to be looking for a content manager and some marketing folks. So if you have a creative marketing mind, let us know. We're based in Toronto, Canada. Um, but we do hire remotely sometimes, uh, but we also have a real office and see each other in real life sometimes too. So follow us on Twitter for more updates on jobs.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you both so much. This was a a blast talking through this and then thinking through my own business through the, through the light of, uh, play and, uh, children's apps. So thank you for being on the podcast today.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you have a minute, please leave a review in your favorite podcast player. You can also stop by chat.subclub.com to join our private community.